Welcome to Season 1 of American Political History, Rebecca Rolfe. The native inhabitants of the New World created a fracture in the Old World order. Remember, this was a time that saw the universe in a unifying order of spheres from heaven to earth to hell. People clearly had an order too. There was the Catholic peoples or the Protestant peoples, Christians, Then the Mandarins, who had a complex society that just needed the word of God to place them next to the European Christians on the top of the hierarchy of peoples. Then there was the Jews and the Muslims perverting the word of God, but they too would find redemption either through conversion or the sword. And then there was the Africans, who were clearly marked by God with the curse of Ham. Ham is the son of Noah, and in the biblical story, Noah cursed his son for his transgressions. It was said that Ham and his descendants would be marked for all to see. And this was linked to blackness of Africans, being the obvious mark of that curse. So the problem is, what to do with this new population of heathens in the new world? They just simply didn't fit. Pocahontas, or as she was known after her marriage to John Rolfe, Rebecca Rolfe, is a window into this clash of cultures. It is often too simplistically stated or mythologized that Europeans were all racist, akin to the worst racists in American history, and and assumed that the further back you go, the more racist the people would be. And these most racist people settled the New World, giving no respect to natives as real humans. The problem with this simplistic mythology is that it tells us more about ourselves today, deciding to invent a narrative into history designed to make us feel good about our more evolved state as humans. But more damagingly, it waters down the details where wisdom can be obtained. We could learn from those details if we were humble enough to admit that we aren't some better form of humans today, that if we were raised in these same cultures, we too would have acted just like those people that we judge. Because fundamentally, wisdom is not learning from your own mistakes. Wisdom is learning from the mistakes of others. After all, the United States today is hardly that different than the first colonists or the English in that time period. We still don't value the cultures of those we are hostile with. Don't believe me? Well, What is your cultural knowledge of the Afghan culture, society, and values? We have been at war with that country for 20 years. How about Iraq, Iran, North Korea, China? Anyone else in the world? Hell. We are hardly even able to grasp the culture of our fellow Americans that simply live in another part of the country. These cultural ignorances that we have hasn't caused any major problems because We don't live in the same space fighting over the same resources, power, and control structures. But when you do live right immediately next to another culture, these ignorances, misinterpretations of motivations, and judgments of the other group based on the least within that group, well, then that causes clashes. And if clashes become violent, those become grievances which demand retribution and end in war. English culture and generally Christian culture of that time thought of itself as superior. Its moral duty was to share literal 
salvation for those that didn't have an opportunity to know the word of God, to save their very souls from eternal damnation. So perhaps it would be more accurately said that the English culture of the time was one of religious supremacy, perhaps ethnic superiority. The racism and legacy of that racism in America was not a motivation of someone in 1620. That legacy of blackness equating to slavery and natives having no rights grows out of later American history. The English also had real-world evidence as to why their culture was superior. First of all, and most obviously, it was the English culture that sailed across the Atlantic Ocean to the New World. The New World didn't have that technology or anything close to it. In fact, most science was far superior in England. The farming technology allowed for the production of 10 to 100 times the produce per acre, hence the much larger population in Europe. The English had advanced so far within their society that they had institutions of higher learning, where individuals could craft themselves into learned scholars of both religion and science. But most fundamental to the savage nature of the natives in North America, they lacked books, and most importantly, the book of God. Was that not evidence enough to say that English culture was superior? Would you trust a shaman whose only scientific qualification was smoking until he was high, or the word of an Oxford-trained scientist? Even today, we make the same argument for the advancedness of our culture. Just follow the science. Or you're stupid and ignorant, and there should be laws passed to make you follow our science. We think we're different. We're better. But we often use the same paradigm of logic once used in the past. Sure, the topic is different. The outcome, the rationality, are almost identical. But there were clashes of more than just culture in the New World. Like today, motivations of wealth and greed played a factor too. Rich meant something else in English society. It meant landed gentry. That was a status of owning land and the ability to live off the rents of those lands. Without both, one could never truly gain the higher reaches of societal status. Unfortunately, land was at a premium in England. All of the land had already been gobbled up by powerful families of English society. There was no path to the upper class without having your own land. Worst yet, landed estates could only be passed down to one child, typically the eldest son. This meant there was a lot of well-connected second sons of aristocracy looking for somewhere to make their fortune. Remember, the steering wheel of history has many hands on it. Only with hindsight do we understand which of these hands is most influential. But Jamestown and Roanoke, the officially sanctioned settlements, had based themselves on trading with the natives. This speaks to the unsettled relationship with the natives' place in the universe of the English mind. After all, the English wanted to see themselves as better than the Spanish who just conquered and enslaved most of the natives they found, turning islands in the Caribbean barren of native populations. The English went into these settlements hoping to trade, not conquer, trying to find a path of wealth, not warfare. The companies that funded the Virginia settlement would have explicit orders to their captains to create peaceful relations with the natives. That was how they planned on both food to supply those colonists 
and trade to make the colonies profitable. Initial colonialization of North America was corporate business ventures sent to make money off of native trade. Yet, Jamestown would be in almost constant warfare with some part of the Powhatan Confederacy. Not because this was a preconceived plan of invasion. Because then, like now, people don't see the other's perspective once they feel they've been aggrieved. In the case of the Virginia colonies, the English wanted to incorporate the natives into English culture for their supposed benefit. The English expected the acceptance of their superior moral values. They would help the natives reach superior levels of humanity. Who would turn that down? If you're thinking right now this is, this is racism or some ignorance of a bygone era, we still view our actions in the same lens today. Why would Iraq not want all American values. We are awesome. We topple their dictators. They must be crying out for it. Democracy. Who would refuse democracy? Why would a savage turn down Christ? Once we show them the way, they'll be crying out for salvation. They're in a savage state. Not their fault. But we are fully capable of bringing them into the folds of modernity. And if you think on the other side, the Powhatan were just backdrops for history, ignorant of English ambition, naively waiting to be conquered. Think again. The Powhatan would trade as it fit them, seeking to control this trade with England, bringing them greater wealth and opportunities. They wanted to place themselves as the gatekeeper of English trade to the interior nations of North America. That is the same type of gatekeeping of trade that was on the Silk Road which made the Ottoman Empire fabulously wealthy. Positioning the Powhatan Confederacy as the gatekeeper was the chief's paramount goal. When the starving times hit, he offered them shelter and food, as long as they turned to him with their craftsmen. In his mind, he offered generous terms. Given their situation, not even making them slaves, which he could have demanded given their starvation, yet he was rebuffed? Couple this rejection with the further rejection of Jamestown's population of only men refusing any intermarriages with Powhatan women, marriages that could have signaled intentions for long-term friendship, if a people refused to interrelate and when starving declined the most generous of terms, how could they possibly think of you as their friend? Powhatan ordered the opening attack in the first Anglo-Powhatan Wars. This attack was to control trade, to box Jamestown back into a corner, to make the English submit to the Powhatan's will. The Powhatan chief thinking in Algonquian customs that a large surprise attack that cripples another nation and shows your superiority will be taken to and concluded at the negotiation tables like civilized people. After all, what other choice did the chief have when his most generous terms were rebuffed? But we know this story. Pocahontas' story stands out from the spiral into warfare all around her. She is proof that peace was possible, that history is not inevitable. She is proof that there is a third way to be fought for. Her bravery to embrace a totally foreign culture, religion, and customs, to have her children in that culture. Even today, could you imagine marrying someone of another country who spoke a different language, prayed to a different god? 
There is no other way to describe this leap than as courageous. From all of the accounts of this marriage with John Rolfe, it was one spurred on by love on both sides, which was odd. Given their stations, they likely and typically would have been married to someone for social standing. Rebecca Rolfe would convert to Christianity and move with John to England. She would become a celebrity, even meeting King James himself over dinner, along with appearances throughout the London social circles. But the more important thing was that she was willing to risk much to bridge the divide between cultures, even though that bridge broke down within half a decade in Virginia. Both sides praised her as the primary inspiration for peace between Jamestown and the Powhatan. It was called the Pocahontas Peace. She was celebrated for bringing it about, not because she negotiated it, but because her actions inspired it. Now, I believe it's important to measure the character of an individual, not by the eventual outcome of history. Rebecca Rolfe was not that impactful on the course of events and war in Jamestown. But you should judge someone by their actions they choose to take in their time, in their moment. There is a statue dedicated to Pocahontas in Kent, England, to this day. The respect shown to her by the English and the Powhatan, shared on both sides, is not because she forged a permanent peace. It's in recognition that at least she could say at the end of the day, she tried to forge that permanent peace. She tried to make a melting pot of cultures. She was the lone hand on the steering wheel of history, trying to do something extraordinary. She would die of disease at age 21, preparing to make the voyage back to Virginia in March of 1617. Her son would be educated in England, and become a prosperous resident of the Virginia colony. Rebecca Rolfe has many American descendants today, including most famously Nancy Reagan. And although I don't think she foreshadowed the great American melting pot of cultures, I certainly respect her for attempting to help create an Anglo-Algonquian melting pot, an example for trying to steer the course of history towards peace and love. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe, leave a five-star rating, and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.